Anthony. Ian. I'm pumped. I am so excited that we're sharing this with everybody. I know, me too. Yep, tell us what we're doing. Yeah, there's a backstory. So um, I wanted everybody to have the opportunity to hear the first chapter of my new book, The Story of You, An Enneagram Journey to Becoming Your True Self. Because, you know, the first chapter is always the portal way. Yeah. It, you, people make the decision whether or not they're going to go on reading a book after the, the first chapter, sometimes mm-hmm. halfway into the first chapter, right? Mm-hmm. And I am so excited about this particular chapter because I really worked hard on it, and it just sets up the whole premise of what I've been working on in my own personal life, uh, and uh, what I'm hoping to spread the news about, which is this notion, of course, that uh, we are the narrators of our life story. Mm-hmm. And if we take charge of that, everything changes. Mm-hmm. Everything changes. Yeah, people are going to love this chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters. There are several chapters that are my favorite, so you won't want to stop at chapter one, but you do a good job of setting the book up. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, everybody. This is chapter one. From the story of you. Enjoy. Chapter 1 The Stories We Tell Recognizing the Myth of Who You Are. The universe is made of stories, not of atoms. Muriel Rukeyser. When I dragged myself into my first 12 step meeting for people battling substance addiction, I felt more self-conscious than a bastard at a family reunion. Like most shame-riddled newcomers who fear rejection, I was sheepish about asking anyone to be my sponsor. But there was this one guy, Jack, a 75-year-old retired Episcopal priest and therapist, was a recovery superhero. Whenever he spoke at meetings, his wry sense of humor and hard-won wisdom were apparent to everyone. He was a beacon of hope to those of us who had earned our seats in the rooms. One night after a meeting, I mustered up the courage to introduce myself to him and ask if he'd consider taking me under his wing. Jack's face softened, a smile appearing behind his eyes. How long since you last drank or drugged, he asked. Two weeks, I said, looking down at my shoes. Congratulations, he said, throwing his arms around me and hugging me so enthusiastically I thought he might break one of my ribs. I'll take you on. Under Jack's mentorship, my two weeks of sobriety stretched into one month, then two, and before I knew it, I received my anniversary chip marking three continuous months. My life was humming along swimmingly until Jack dropped a bomb on me at one of our weekly Sunday morning check-in meetings at the Colonial Diner. I signed you up to share your story at next week's Sunday night speakers meeting, he said, stirring two packets of sugar into his coffee. Recovery groups offer different meeting formats. In a speakers meeting, one person shares their story, what their life was like before and while they were using and the experience, strength, and hope they're finding through the program and working the steps. It's kind of like a personal testimony you might hear at a Baptist church, only boozier. Jack, you'd tell me if you'd had a stroke, right? I said, only half kidding. No. Why do you ask? Jack said, arching one eyebrow. Because I've only been sober for three months. I'm not ready. 
You don't have to deliver the Gettysburg Address, he said, chuckling. For the next 30 minutes, I came up with one lame excuse after another to get out of speaking. But Jack wouldn't budge. Resigned to my fate, I stood up and laid down a five on the formica-topped table. See you on Sunday, I muttered, picking up my windbreaker and walking to the door. Get yourself to five meetings this week, Jack called after me. Without turning around, I waved goodbye. Yeah, yeah, I know. Over the next seven days, I wrote and trashed at least a dozen drafts of my life story. During my last pharmaceutical jag, I had suffered a series of panic attacks and was still terrified of losing control in public. But I slaved away until I had an acceptable draft of my chemical misadventures and rehearsed it, ignoring the movies in my head featuring projectile vomiting and images from Edvard Munch's The Scream. That Sunday night, I stood before 200 people and told the story of me, at least as I understood it at the time. I described how I'd always felt like a troubled guest on the dark earth. I was sure I lacked something inside that everyone else seemed to have. I felt like a college freshman who'd missed orientation week and didn't know his way around campus like everyone else. I enumerated the long list of reasons for my tattered self-worth, including my father's death from alcoholism and how I'd still give anything to believe I wasn't somehow responsible for his inability to love me. Then I described how I felt when I took my first drink. Finally at home in my own skin, fitting in, at ease in the world. Except that back then my life was sort of like the glass castle meets the prince of tides, only less hopeful. But when the meeting ended, I felt like a celebrity. Person after person came up to tell me the parts of my story they identified with and to thank me for my willingness to share it. When the last one left, I helped fold and stack the chairs washed the coffee urns, and left with Jack riding shotgun in my Toyota Corolla. You did a good job tonight, he said, rolling down the passenger side window to release the smoke from his signature Cuban cigar. Thanks, I said, relieved to be over my first attempt at sharing my life's journey. It's interesting, Jack mused. While you were speaking, I found myself thinking about the crazy story each of us comes up with to make sense of our lives. He gazed at the smoke wafting up and out the car window, seemingly lost in his own thought. When I pulled up at the end of Jack's driveway, he offered his congratulations one last time and got out of the car, hobbling on his creaky knees. I was about to put the car in drive and pull away when he turned back around. One more thing, he said, bending over to speak to me through the open passenger window. Do you ever wonder if you're living in the wrong story? Uh, no, I said, trying not to frown. You might, Jack said, double-tapping the roof of my car with his hand. Then he turned on his heels and began trudging up the driveway, disappearing into the night's inky darkness. The Power of the Enneagram I was 27 years old when Jack asked me that question. At the time, I dismissed it as the kind of oddball question only a septuagenarian therapist might pose when he stayed up past his bedtime. 
Today, I see Jack's question to me as a major turning point in changing the false story I told myself about who I was, a story that had helped me make sense of a painful childhood but became an obstacle to my growth as an adult. My old story is captured in a snapshot I still have of me back when I was a little boy at the beach with my family. In the picture, I'm sitting in a beached lifeguard boat, waving and laughing at the camera. I remember it was a beautiful, sunny day. I'm squinting at the camera, and everyone in the background is sporting Ray-Bans, baking in the sun, their bronze skin glistening with Hawaiian tropic dark tanning oil. It strikes me as ironic that I'm sitting in a lifeboat. My family was lost at sea in those days, and though I was a child, I remember sensing that my siblings and I were living under a low ceiling of gray clouds. Our troubled father was taking our ship down. Fifteen years later, I was a hard-drinking partier, being chased down by my friends in young life who viewed me as a prized evangelism project but I wanted nothing to do with God. In childhood, I'd loved him with all my heart, but I grew to believe that he'd abandoned me to my crazy family. Stretched out in front of me was a lifetime of feeling ashamed, weighted down with a longing to be seen and loved that I feared would never be fulfilled. When I began working on my issues in my 20s, the green shoots of a new story began to emerge from the soil. It took years of hard work and prayer to craft a new narrative. But today, when I look in the mirror, I see a sober husband and father, an Episcopal priest, therapist, and author. Where there was old me, now there's a new me. Where there was fear and shame, now there's dignity. Where there was an unnameable missing piece everyone else had but I didn't, Now there's the certain belief that I'm not missing anything inside. Where there was loneliness and abandonment, I now have a kind and encouraging community that affirms my gifts. Where there was grim resignation, now there's a serene acceptance that life is simultaneously hard and brimming with beauty and grace. And where there was meaninglessness, now there's the knowledge that I continue to take everything I've experienced and use it to advance God's love into our riven world. When I reached another major turning point in my life in discovering the Enneagram, it helped make sense of this dramatic before and after difference in my life. Even more important, and this is key to this entire book, it helped me learn what was fueling and sustaining my old story and what I needed to do that would make it possible for me to keep moving into my new story. The transformation itself was all grace. But I had a choice either to resist or to receive it. I wish I'd known the Enneagram when I began the journey of writing a new story for myself. It would have saved me time. Traditionally, the Enneagram refers to a personality typing system that helps people cultivate self-knowledge. To learn more about the Enneagram and to take a test to determine your Enneagram type, visit my website, ianmorgancron.com. I'm an Enneagram 4, which is just one of the nine basic types of the system. 
Ennea is the Greek root for the word nine. Called the Romantics, fours are creative, imaginative people who are sensitive, empathic, and attuned to beauty and aesthetics. Sounds good, right? But like all Enneagram types, they have a shadow side. In the fours case, it includes moodiness, a fear of abandonment, and the belief that they're irredeemably deficient, among other things. Through the years, I've learned that the Enneagram is a remarkably helpful tool for understanding myself and others. When I was first introduced to it during a difficult season in my life, its ability to describe my way of moving through the world amazed me. I became a devoted student of this ancient, uncannily accurate system of personality. As my fascination and appreciation grew, I wrote a book about it, The Road Back to You, with Suzanne Stabile, and started a podcast, Typology, on which I explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. In the hours ahead, you'll meet my friends who were willing to show up and share their stories. Several years into my study of the Enneagram, I had an aha moment that boosted my appreciation of its wisdom even more. Not only does its description of nine different types accurately describe our personality, but the Enneagram reveals the nine broken stories that each type adopts and inhabits in childhood to make sense of the world. Destructive stories we continue to tell ourselves in adulthood about who we are and how the world operates. As you'll learn, the self-defining stories we invent in childhood later wreak havoc on our lives, psychologically and spiritually, because the underlying premise of each is in direct opposition to the grace-filled, larger story God wants us to enter into and enjoy. The Enneagram also shows us how to escape our type's broken story by getting off the treadmill repetitions of self-defeating behaviors and misperceptions that often leave us frustrated, confused, and heartbroken. What separates the Enneagram from other personality typing systems is that it helps us craft and live a better, truer story than the one we've unconsciously settled for. I'm going to tell you a bit later in the book how I've learned to do this myself. Our Origin Story Human beings are incurable storytellers. We tell hard luck stories, tall stories, short stories, cock and bull stories, sob stories, rags to riches stories, shaggy dog stories, fish stories, one-sided stories, and the occasional long story short. What accounts for the power and everywhereness of stories? Our very survival depends on them. From the time we enter this world, we begin crafting a story that helps us make sense and give meaning to the painful things that happen to us. Don't underestimate little kids. They're wicked smart. They don't just pick up messages from their family members and peers about who they are and what the world expects of them. They suck them up like shop vacs. Over time, they naturally create an elaborate story about their identity and value based on these experiences and unconscious messages, a narrative that grooves itself deeply into their hearts. This is the story that helped us as children know who we needed to be and what we needed to do to feel safe in the world. 
According to many therapists, we actually build our lives around this self-told story. It forms our identity and personality. For example, if your father lavished you with praise only when you won in sports, or if you heard the disappointment in your mother's voice when you got a B-plus on your report card, did you think to yourself, oh well, my parents mean well, but they're just shallow people who need me to be their little wunderkind, to buoy their self-esteem and make them look good in the eyes of their friends at the country club? Heck no, you likely noted their reactions and concocted a story around the message, I have to win every game. I have to ace every test. I have to succeed at everything in life or people won't love me. Or maybe you were a quiet and shy kid whose desires got swallowed up by outgoing friends and domineering siblings. Did you decide, hey, I'll get a big-ass bullhorn and force them to notice me? Or did you unconsciously craft a story around the message, no one ever hears or values my opinions or desires. Why waste time and energy voicing them? Maybe you endured the trauma of your parents' divorce, the sudden loss of a sibling, or the unpredictable behavior of an alcoholic family member. Could you see beyond the pain to conclude, life is full of beauty and terror, but in the end, all shall be well? Not a prayer. Even the poet Rilke couldn't come up with an insight like that at age seven. Instead, you probably reached a different conclusion, more along the lines of, the world is a scary, unpredictable, painful place. If I don't remain vigilant all the time, I won't be ready when disaster strikes again. Now, notice how each of these life narratives runs contrary to the story of grace. Does God require us to succeed in order to be loved? Does God insist that we run ourselves into the ground with exhaustion before we can know peace? Does God say we will feel safe in the world only if we live in perpetual fear of the worst? I think not. But once we tether ourselves to these stories, it never occurs to us that we can interrogate or rewrite them. Every day becomes our very own personalized Groundhog Day. Like Bill Murray's film character trapped in a seemingly endless loop of repetition, we recycle the same events and mistakes again and again. We see what we've conditioned ourselves to see, no matter how much older we are or how different circumstances may be from the training ground of our childhood. But here's the thing. These stories are worn-out myths. They're useful and necessary myths in childhood for sure, but they make a mess of our lives when we continue to believe them uncritically in adulthood. As Carl Jung once wrote, we cannot live the afternoon of life according to the program of life's morning, for what was great in the morning will be little at evening, and what in the morning was true will at evening have become a lie. What supports us in childhood thwarts us in adulthood. Our old stories continue to operate autonomously in the shadows of the heart and become the enemy of our growth. Fortunately, we can craft a different story in adulthood. We can't change the facts of what happened to us in the past, but we can change how we show up for life in the present. In the chapters ahead, 
we'll learn how each of us can rewrite the survival story of our Enneagram type. It's time to jettison the old storyline. Doing so is within your power, and I wrote this book to show you how. As Mo Willems, the children's author, once wrote, If you ever find yourself in the wrong story, leave. Hey, I hope you have enjoyed this first chapter of Ian's book, The Story of You. If you haven't gotten the book yet and you want to, we want to let you know that you can get this book, The Story of You, anywhere fine books are sold and online, Amazon, Google, Apple, and of course the audio version is available in those places as well. Thanks for listening.